Welcome to Hypervoice. I am your host, Stephen Morioka, and today I am joined by Alexander Hill. Alola. Alola. And also joining us today is Jake Muller. Hello. And Jake, I believe you're uh, over the seas at the moment in um, the United Kingdom. Is that correct? That is correct. I'm over here studying abroad for a semester. Excellent news. Uh, how are you liking it so far? I like it a lot. I, England is a lot different than America in a bunch of ways, and I, they're all good, mostly. Uh, it's really pretty over here. The weather, I personally think, is nicer because it's cooler, and I hate the heat, but a lot of people would probably disagree with me. Uh, and it's a lot more scenic than anywhere I've lived in America, too, which is pretty neat. That's really cool. What is uh, What city are you in specifically? I'm in Reading, England, which is about in like a 45-minute train ride west of London. Oh, I always read it as reading. <laughs> is it spelled that way or no? Yeah, it's spelled like reading, but it's pronounced reading. I'm sure you're not okay. the only one. So, one, I want to ask you one thing is, or actually to, if you could tell us one thing, what is one thing that the British do over there that's kind of different from America? Can you name anything? Yeah, so they drive on the left uh, instead of the right, which I think everyone knows already. But also, like... In America, we have a tendency to move to the right side of a walkway if you're like meeting someone and you have to pass each other just on the sidewalk or something. And over here, they move to the left instead of the right, probably just because they're naturally used to being on the left side because they drive on the left side. And that threw me off because I've been like walking around campus and I'll see someone coming and move over to the right, but they'll move to their left and we'll be on the same side of the pathway again. So then I'll have to like quickly correct myself and get around them and I just look like an idiot. So <laughs> that will take some getting used to. <laughs> I guess all you got to tell them is you're American. Yeah, they'll be like, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> and then I'll say in my best British accent, no. <laughs> Just make sure that they don't confuse that for Spanish. <laughs> A Spanish no. No. How's the, uh, have you got to experience any VGC over there yet? Yeah, there was a regional in Germany last weekend, or like the middle of January. And it was the same weekend as Athens in America. And I went over to that because... I figured, why not? I'm already in Europe. It's a pretty cheap flight, and I got to see a lot of people. Didn't really play so well. The free CP was not as free as I had expected. Yeah, free UCP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably deserved that from all the stuff I was saying on Twitter, but I don't know. I got likes for it. I had fun. It was a really good time. I got to see a lot of people that I usually just see at Worlds, which was a pretty big treat, and I'll hopefully be able to get to a couple more regionals before I head back to America. Great, so that means you'll likely end up at our at the North American International, which we'll get into later. <laughs> yeah, I should be back in time for that. That's great to hear. Uh, and just really quickly, in terms of your local scene, do you know if premier challenges, maybe mid-seasons, are close to you? Do you have to travel a bit? Uh, I haven't really scouted that out too much. I know, I don't think Reading itself has any tournaments. Um, I'm sure there are some in London at some point, but I know that I... Got a list of different tournaments across the UK and Ireland from someone on Twitter the other day, and so I'll probably go through that pretty soon and maybe try and make a few of them. Very cool. Well, I suppose we can move away from the UK a little bit here and talk about Melbourne. So, other side of the world. Uh, more specifically, the Melbourne Challenge, which I don't know the greatest of details about. So, why don't you two fill... All, uh, everyone in on what this was about and what happened with this tournament. So what happened over the this past weekend was Sam Pandelis, who goes by Zelda, ran a 
online tournament uh, to basically award a trip to the Melbourne International in Australia. Uh, the prize was, uh, it ended up being uh, $1,581 U.S. dollars, and um, that should be probably enough for anyone from any the uh, anywhere around the world to fly themselves to Melbourne. And that was the idea, is uh, to get some deserving player to the international in Australia. Yeah, so that happened on this last Saturday. It happened all in one day on Showdown, and so Sam put together uh, like a big bracket on Battlefy, and he did a bunch of Swiss rounds. I think they had eight rounds, just based on the number of people that signed up. And then he had an all-X2 cut, and then just uh, played out a top cut from there, and the winner took it all. And Aaron Zhang actually ended up winning, surprisingly enough. <laughs> uh, he had, I think, someone told me that he like didn't drop a game in top cut or something like that, which is kind of crazy, but he was pretty dominant throughout the whole tournament. He only dropped one set in Swiss to Peffin, I believe, and then won the rest of his sets. So yeah, it looks like he will probably be going to Melbourne with all that money, or he might just be pocketing it. Who really knows? <laughs> Well, knowing Aaron, I'd imagine that he'd like to travel to get to more tournaments because yeah. he is a player that likes to get to, uh, you know, as many tournaments as possible. And he's definitely traveled. He's very passionate about playing VGC competitively. And so I imagine that he would go to the tournament. At least that's my perspective on it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, as for his team, he uh, did use a variation of Wolf Glick's Athens team, I believe, is what Wolf was telling uh, when he was commentating on the stream because Aaron had asked him about the team. And he ended up replacing Tapu Lele on the team with Ninetales. So the final six ended up being Tapu Fini, Arcanine, Garchomp, Muck, Porygon2, and Ninetales. And if you want to follow along and see what the teams that we're talking about, uh, you can check it out on TrainerTower.com and just look for the Melbourne Challenge. They do have all of the uh, X and 2 teams, which I think ends up being around like 25 teams. So if you do want to look at that, please uh, go check it out. And there's actually quite a few cool teams here, and I think Aaron's was definitely one of them as well. Aaron's was really cool, but the team that got second was pretty hilarious. Uh, it's a team that a lot of times uh, it would lead with the uh, Faramosa and the Oricorio Pom Pom, the electric form, and he would quiver dance with Faramosa and then copy the quiver dance with Dancer. And then he had a uh, Fly MZ on it as well, so he could supersonic sky strike stuff. He had the Revelation Dance for some pretty good coverage with Electric, and I'm pretty sure he had Tailwind as well. And the other mode of the team was like a Lilligant Torkoal mode, and so he had a lot of like super threatening offense. It was a very hyper-offensive team, and if you tried to prepare for the wrong mode and led wrong, you were in a pretty bad spot already. And so that it was a, it's a team that if you look at, you probably would think, oh, that's, I mean, probably looks kind of fun and like a best-of-one thing. It would be fun to ladder with on Showdown, but... Probably you wouldn't expect it to do so well at such a big tournament. So really good job to our second place finisher as well. I mean, despite having the opportunity to win a lot of money and especially to get to the international in Australia, I feel like players who went played in this tournament had a lot less pressure on them. You know, even though they paid the entry fee to participate in this, and you know, you're not really losing too much. There wasn't CP on the line, and is it? It's it's correct that only the winner gets that money, right? Yep, only the winner. They didn't split it up at all. Wow. All right. Well, hopefully Aaron Zhang's schedule allows him to travel out because it'd be it'd be cool to see him go out there and compete. Um, you know, congratulations to him on winning. There's a lot of that was a lot of good information about the Mateo's second place team. You know, just from observing it on the teams list. You know, I don't think anyone would really be able to decipher it that much, <laughs> but. Uh, looks pretty cool, and the stream is also available. I think uh, hopefully those VODs were saved. 
Uh, were you guys impressed with the overall tournament, though? How it was run? Uh, it's because it seems it was pretty much all grassroots run by Sam or Zelda. Yeah, I wasn't able to watch it in real time. Uh, for the most part, I was like out of the. I was out in town most of the day, and then I came back and had some other stuff to do. But I heard a lot of feedback on Twitter, and people were like very impressed with how well it was run. Uh, Sam did a very good job running this tournament, organizing it, and publicizing it early. People knew about this for a couple months, and he had a date a while ago. Said, "Hey, mark this date on your calendar. This is when it's happening." And so, like, if you didn't know anything about it, you probably don't keep up with the community at all because it was pretty pretty easy to like hear about and sam ran it very well yeah it was a really cool tournament to watch i did manage to catch some of the stream and everything was running very smoothly the rounds kept going quickly and from what i heard from different players they were very satisfied with how things ended up going and it was really uh just really good in general like uh they had commentary a good stream thanks to uh marcus and vice and then wolf ended up uh commentating later once he was knocked out in i believe top 16 and yeah, it was just a very fun tournament. It's really cool that uh, you get to have so many international players competing for this prize in the end, because uh, it's not something that you would get to experience unless you are going to like Worlds or something like that. And so many players got to, although not come together um, physically, they got to play against one another online. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, for the record, I did was able to see, you know, Sam's posts about him earlier. I knew I wasn't going to be available over that weekend, so I didn't pay attention too much to them. But it seems like there's a lot of positive feedback, hoping we can get something like this either run by Sam again in the future or just by other players, you know, gauging what the interest of this kind of tournament was and hopefully providing some inspiration for others to do something similar. But I suppose moving on from the Melbourne Challenge, uh, Australians International will be coming up, so I'll get to talking about that in a little bit. But we're roughly almost two months into the format now, maybe a little more if you count those two weeks before December, which I guess you can. So, you know, two months in the format. What do you guys, what is your favorite thing about the format so far? VGC 2017. I think my favorite thing about it is that it feels so open, especially compared to 2016 when there was a really just like four or five archetypes that you could build around. There's a lot of Pokemon that are good and like, easily usable in this format in 2017 and so if you want to build around something like Garchomp that's really easy to do a lot of things go well with Garchomp and it's a great Pokemon on the other hand you have something like Araquanid that's also very strong and they can work together but they're also it can be very on very different teams and you really like if you take if you look at like the top 20 Pokemon and take any six of them there's a good chance it's going to be like a viable and usable team and so I feel like the kind of openness in the uh, I don't know versatility is kind of a bad word it's kind of a buzzword but I, <laughs> I do think that um, there's a lot of options this format which feels a lot nicer compared to 2016. I think what I'm really enjoying about this format is uh, just the amount of uh, variety I'm seeing in like teams from Japan honestly uh, I've seen a lot of cool things come from them and uh, that second place team in the Melbourne Challenge I believe spawned from a laddering player in Japan and there's just a lot of cool strategies that I think uh, that they're exploring over there they were like one of the first couple of people to uh, like over there they were kind of they started getting on Tapu Fini before anyone in America did and we just see a lot of their trends kind of carrying over elsewhere and they're really showing why uh, in 
previous years they've been so dominant. They've got lots of fun teams like uh and then I guess other elsewhere in Asia, like Sajin's uh Porygon Z, his scarf set on that uh, ended up catching on a lot and uh because of that Porygon Z is just kind of a common Pokemon in general and I'm a big fan of seeing it because it's just it's really versatile, like uh <laughs> the buzzword, but um there are so many different ways to run it. Like people are running Trick Room on it. People are running Breakneck Blitz with Hyper Beam to just get one one hit KO and then Hyper Beam after that and get another one hit KO. Uh, and I think that uh, that's got to be one of my favorite things. And just Z moves in general. Uh, Z moves are really cool. How uh, every team can you know fit one of them if they want to. They can choose to go none, and some teams choose to go with two. But uh, it can really like change up a game or, you know, give you a solid game plan. Uh, like seeing, um, Tectonic Rage from Garchomp is just like a really, really cool aspect to me. Having Garchomp able to go for a very strong one-off ground move that you have to be careful with because you can blow it into a levitating Pokemon or flying type and you can also waste it on a protect. So you have to play very carefully with Z moves to get the most out of them. And I think it rewards strong players. One quick note on the Garchomp. Back in the Melbourne Challenge, of those 25 teams, 20 teams had Garchomp. So it's just showing its strength and, again, how good of a Pokemon it is in another format where, I guess, well, Landorus is not allowed. So that's probably one of the biggest reasons because if it were, you know, we wouldn't be seeing that much Garchomp. But Garchomp is so good and it continues to impress me despite uh, being one of the number one Pokemon. No matter how hard you counter it, it's still going to be a difficult Pokemon to play against. But I see your uh, perspective on the Z moves and everything like that, especially with Porygon right. Z. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I guess but my one of my favorite things about it is, so one quick side note is I'm glad Snorlax is pretty viable again. Uh, it has not been viable in a, Pokemon, in a VGC format since 2010. And back then it was really just used to blow up stuff with self-destruct when... Its power was still not halved, so all the way back then you saw Snorlax, and now it's finally back to do different things with the gluttony ability it can abuse. But I guess one of my favorite things is how much more accessible it feels to just everyone. And it does feel easier for everyone to train in the games, even the hardcore players who've already been playing uh, for a while now. And with, you know, just with the introduction of hyper training, all these streams of all the events that are picking up and hopefully that stays consistent. I like seeing that a lot. Uh, I think it's really great for growing the game. It's just making VGC much more accessible. Same with the adding that VGC ladder, the championships battle on battle spot. I think that's great. So one of my favorite things about the format is how accessible it is, you know, compared to say last year where your two restricted Pokemon, you needed to soft reset and get perfect IVs for, you know, if you're going to, uh, try and do that so i like the accessibility and you know i agree with both of you with what you guys said in terms of um just how open the format feels and how diverse the format feels as well so i guess we'll take our statements to the bank and talk about a time bank and i guess more specifically so people don't get confused is time bank is a term that when we had gavin michaels on our show a few episodes back he mentioned that as the your time feature, and I like that term, time bank, your time, whatever you want to use, but for for uh, for the record, we are talking about your time right now, and 
what's everyone's opinions on it so far? You know, we're two months in. Have you guys adjusted to the new timer? Do you like it? I guess we can also fit in the new uh, overall 50-minute match timer to go along with it. You know, have you guys adjusted? Uh, just what are your general opinions now? Well, my opinion is that it's called Your Time. You know, that's the name they gave it. And uh, I know that you and Gavin are both regional champions. So maybe Time Bank is the way to say it. But uh, I'm still going to stick with Your Time because it's just catchier. And uh, Time Bank was really confusing me when you first mentioned it. I was uh, honestly lost. I did not know what the subject was going to be. But anyway, Your Time as a feature... I think is uh, all right. I do end up missing the old timer just because I think the way that it played, it was competitive. But from a spectator perspective, it was going to be boring, yes, uh, if a game came down to that. But uh, there are things like uh, minimize. There are weird gimmick strategies that involve going down uh, Pokemon like Shedinja, who isn't legal in this format. But, you know, strategies like that that involve going way down in Pokemon and then just kind of stalling forever and... uh, Stuff like that, and I just, uh, I enjoyed being able to time stall to get rid of that. However, I don't think the Your Time is a overall negative addition to the game. I think it's fine. It's kind of just passive because, you know, you never, you don't really ever see someone reach the end of Your Time. So it's kind of just, uh, it's a replacement. But, I mean, it feels like games are just going to end based on the number of turns that they reach. You know, if players see that their Your Time is down to three minutes, I guess they have to make moves faster, and that's going to maybe change the way that they play the game, but uh, I haven't even seen that many games reach that, even uh, with the, like, Celesteela versus Celesteela Stall Wars, or Porygon 2, and vice versa. Uh, so, uh, I think Your Time hasn't changed the game whole a lot, a uh, whole lot, but it's uh, it's removed uh, an old thing that you could do, which is time stalling. I think that was kind of big for me. I'm not a huge fan of it, in theory, Um I don't think a lot of when it was first announced, a lot of people were like super nervous that stuff like minimize would catch on because there really isn't a way to effectively time stall it anymore. Uh, but th- we haven't seen that thankfully, and uh, I think that it's played out fine because they did introduce that fifty minute like match like round time rule, which I think serves to kind of mitigate some of the like issues we were expecting to see like hour-long games just because you have two Celesteels against each other and you can just click your moves really quickly and you're never going to run out of your time. But uh, I do think that it's probably a little bit less effective than the previous timer, but I don't think it's that bad. Um, At that region I was in uh, like a week or so ago in Germany, I think just about every round there was at least one match that went to the 50-minute time, which was kind of annoying just because it kept holding up the tournament. Uh, But like I said, I don't think it's that big a deal. I think a few extra minutes at the end of every round isn't that big a deal because you're pretty much dedicating your entire day to the tournament anyway. And so the time you lose isn't really relevant compared to the time you're already spending. Um, if something like Minimize starts to catch on, I think that people will miss the old timer a little bit more. Thankfully, we haven't really seen that yet. So I don't think it's that big a deal right now. That is a good thing to hear. I'm not so sure... If uh, I really like the, I'm sorry, rather, uh, I do really like how the 50 minute overall timer uh, kind of like what, like what you just mentioned, mitigates the, the uh, idea that people would try to use some of these more stally strategies and just, uh, you know, minimize stuff like that. Uh, we've seen it pop up here and there. It hasn't picked up heavily yet. So I'm happy about that. The one thing I do like about the your time now is how it keeps the pace of the game going. So if 
both uh, players know their moves rather quickly, and both of you also know it from each other, then you know you know what's going to happen next, and it usually just keeps the game moving. Rather than in the past, if you both knew each other's moves in those situations, uh, you could still wait for the clock in case people are playing to it. So I just like the way the pace of the game is moving now. Um, as a player, I do appreciate that a lot. As a spectator, I'm sure they do even more. Um, so it's nice for that. I do still, I, st I, th I still think I'd rather prefer the old timer system though, just for some of those gimmicky strategies. Uh, otherwise, you know, your time's a nice new addition. It's not the worst thing in the world. And, you know, you gotta take, take it for what it's worth and I guess, uh, weigh, weigh out the pros and cons of it compared to our previous time system. I do agree that uh, having faster games as a player can be nice, especially when I'm like practicing on battle spot. And uh, like you said, if both players know their moves, then they have no reason not to just go for it because you're only hurting yourself by taking more time and uh, wasting your time. Uh, and <laughs> I think that it, I mean, in practice, it just makes things a lot nicer because uh, you can get more battles in, you know, and you know, when you know the outcome, you know, the outcome, the, it's going to happen. So just, you know, click your moves, get it done with, and then keep going on. And I really like that aspect. Nice. So two more questions for you guys on uh, your time and I guess the time in general. So one is, have you in a tournament reached a sudden death game yet? And another one is, uh, what's the lowest your time, your, your time has gone down to in a game you've played? So for me, I have not reached sudden death, so I don't know. I don't have any personal experiences with that. Uh, I haven't reached that point in a game. And in terms of my your time clock, lowest I've gotten was five minutes, so I was never really in danger of, you know, running out of my own time. Uh, how about you guys? Like, do you guys take a long time making moves? Like, what have your, your situations been? I don't think my your time clock has ever gotten down past five minutes. I think five is where it starts to turn red, I believe. And so I don't, I'm not sure I've ever seen that. I tend to make my moves uh, a little bit quicker, mostly because I'm trying to plan ahead. And so once a turn happens, I'm already like usually thinking about moves and then I try to put them in not like super quickly, but if I, I mean, if I know what I'm doing, I'll just tap the buttons immediately. But I, the most I usually take on a turn is probably 20, 25 seconds. And so I've never really been at risk of running down to your time. Uh, I have not been to sudden death myself. I've never, I haven't been to like the 50 minute timer at all either. So with, I haven't gotten to tiebreakers yet, but in Leipzig at the regional, I know that at least one match went to the actual sudden death. Uh, it was pretty cool. Everyone was kind of crowding around watching it. Uh, I know that there were more that went to like the 50 minutes plus three turns, but I think there was only one that had an actual like sudden death game at the end. That's really interesting to hear. I, uh, cause I really want to know how a sudden death would play out because it's something that I feel like people aren't preparing enough yet for. Uh, and they would really be like thrown for a loop to, you know, try to gain advantage so quickly if, uh, I believe that's the sudden death uh, rules, right? You have to, the first person to gain a Pokemon advantage wins the game. Yeah, so at the end of the turn, if you have more Pokemon left than your opponent, you win. So if you both take if you both take a knockout on the same turn, you're, it still keeps going because it would be three to three. Yeah, it's something that I, uh, I've mentioned that on the show before, but it's not something uh, that I actively prepare for when team building. It's not something that I, I would probably have to come up with a game plan on the fly if it were ever to happen just because it's something that you don't ever see in like past formats and this format is still even rare. So it's kind of cool. Uh, but my personal experience, I 
I think I've reached five minutes before, but I don't know if I've gotten any lower than that because I believe I've seen the red. Uh, but I have not reached sudden death at all. I did have one game at a premiere challenge where it was like a fair number of turns. Like it wasn't just a two turn game, but I had only used like 30 seconds of your time because I was just <laughs> like, I had made like six moves all like five seconds each. And, uh, it was just, a, it was just cause I was playing like that Porygon Z team that I had been using with Blizzard and it was very flow charty. And, uh, sometimes all you got to do is just click double Blizzard and that's, <laughs> that's just the game. Uh, so I think it's really, uh, uh, I think it, one thing I wanted to mention that I think is really fun, uh, is sometimes like at a premiere challenge, um, and I might think this, uh, is more of an intimidation factor than other people would. Some people might just shrug it off and not care, but I think it's interesting that this game tells you when your opponent has locked in their Pokemon mm-hmm. and it says standing by. Cause like sometimes I will know exactly what my game plan is for game two and I'll lock in with like 10 seconds or have passed and, I'll just sitting there like, I already know what I'm doing. Do you know what you're doing? What was your game plan? <laughs> I do the same thing. A lot of times if I like already know what I'm going to bring, I'll just like pick the four pretty quickly and then just sit back and wait. Yeah. It's kind of like, fun. <laughs> be like, I'm, I'm so cool. I'm so calm. Look at me. I already know what I'm doing. I have a plan like, and you should be worried. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think that can be fun. I feel like you should just be tapping the table and then staring them down. <laughs> like waiting for them. <laughs> like, come on, guy, now. let's go. <laughs> and I believe uh, I, I I can't confirm this, but I think at regionals you can see your opponent's your time, so that can also have the same effect. But you can I know see that it, it, yeah, you can't see it counting down, but like while you're picking moves, it shows what their turn started at. Oh, okay, okay. So that's not as good then because you you would just know when the turn starts, right? Because uh, there's no way to tell your opponent that you clicked your moves in really quickly unless you want to like click and then sit back or personally tell them hey i clicked my moves (laughs) (laughs) i'm waiting i guess one thing we could or i guess the community as a group could consider is maybe running a sudden death practice tournament uh (laughs) oh my gosh no no, just you know just as just for the sake of practicing it because before worlds before worlds and even the internationals that's something you're going to want to at least be ready for you don't want to go into it completely blind. Yeah, it, it could be dangerous, though, you know, because if you're going into a sudden death only tournament, then you bring things that pick up KOs very quickly. Right. I suppose that's very true. So, I mean, eh, I guess you yeah. could just practice with your uh, practice with friends, you know, just that's get a probably feel your for best it. Bet. Maybe like, uh, say, after a best of three, you guys finished it. And just for the sake of practice, you know, say, hey, would you want to do like a quick sudden death thing with me? You know, just to try it out. Yeah, I think that's actually a really cool idea and that something people should consider just to start readying themselves for this possible uh, turn of events. You know, if uh, you end up in sudden death and you have a game plan, you're going to be a lot better off than your opponent who, I would say, in the majority case, uh, hasn't actually thought about it. Hey, so I don't know if this is, I don't know if you guys know this, but when I was in Georgia, apparently, you know, one of the one of the games during Swiss went to sudden death. They went to the, you know, game three sudden death thing because time ran out and they didn't get to finish it because there's apparently a five minute clock on that. What do you guys <laughs> know about that? I was not aware of that. So they, they played, you know, they played sudden death thinking, okay, we play our turns out until someone gets an advantage at the end of a turn. And apparently after the five minutes, they then went to, you know, the standard tiebreakers because huh. the five minute clock on sudden death ran out. Oh, wow. Uh, that's really strange. I had not known that would uh, take place either. Yeah, it's really weird. Um, I don't, I don't really know what to say about that. Just hoping, I'm hoping it's a general thing. Hopefully, it's well known among other players. 
Uh, that was the first I heard of it there. Maybe they were just setting a restriction. I'm not sure if it's uh, TO dependent or if it's event dependent. I don't know. I, I don't know the situation there. I imagine that's probably in the rules if they enforced it, because I don't think they just make something up like that. Yeah, they're getting more and more uh, strict, uh, which I think is a good thing you yeah. know, about a lot of uh, rulings. And uh, like we've seen a lot like this year has had a huge spike in like uh, how specific things need to be on your team sheet. We've seen a lot of team sheet issues and stuff like that. But I think it's good, uh, especially going forward. Um and uh, it's funny that it's actually very relevant to me because I had used Porygon Z with conversion and uh, it, it transforms into the type of the first move uh, that it knows. And so if they didn't uh, actually make these rules so strict in the middle of the tournament, I could just switch up my move order and my Porygon Z suddenly changing into a different type, which totally changes the uh, battle and strategy of it. Oh, man. So our moves have to be in the exact same slots, too? Yes. Yeah. Technically, they have to be in the same order on the team sheet as they are like on the Pokemon. They've had that rule in past years, but they didn't enforce it as much, uh, which is funny because uh, it was only because Porygon Z and I guess Porygon 2 or the move conversion wasn't really relevant. Yeah. Uh, you, de- you never really saw it, but now conversion has a much more useful uh, ability with the Z move. But without it, uh, it was totally something you could have done in previous years because conversion, I believe, has always done this. It just didn't have the Z effect to- in uh past formats but right uh if you really wanted to be like a a weird person using porygon z in like some <laughs> other format uh and just change up your type between rounds you know i don't think you that you would get caught of course that's the past so you can't really go back and do that now and who knows how effective it would be you were using porygon z before it's amazing utility and z moves <laughs> so uh yeah i don't really know how that would have worked but it's just something interesting and um i think it's funny that Porygon ZZ conversion has brought attention to move order and how important it is on team sheets. Yeah, that's something I never really realized. Um, how strict you know team sheets will have, uh, especially with the uh, Porygon and Porygon Z, Porygon Two and Porygon Z rather. Uh, team sheets, you got to be very careful with them. You know, we mentioned this before. Just uh, be very diligent about it. Be very careful how you fill it out. You know, even looking at say one of your stats at some point, like say. Say you're a special attacker, you're looking at your attack number. Uh, you know, you gotta write it down just because you have to, and hopefully you just don't misread it when you're copying down all your information. You know, it's just, it's just scary sometimes. Like, you always <laughs> gotta double, triple check these things now. Yeah, it makes me wonder though, uh, while it's very, something very small and minute, um, you could, I guess, get away with changing EV spreads if your Pokemon was a low enough level. Uh, because I believe that EVs don't have as much of an impact when you're, uh, at a lower level. And, uh, I've had Pokemon that I've finished, like, using, like, I had a Clefairy that I ended up getting to level 18 and it was competitive and ready. It had good IVs, good EVs and everything and all the moves I wanted. And so I had to write down its stats at level 18. However, uh, you could get away with, I think, small tweaks at, uh, that, that level just because, uh, the stats don't change as much as they would at level 50. That is true. That also means uh, everything auto levels to 50 to correct now. Yes. Right. Yeah. No more oh, level man. 1 errand for me. No more level 1 strats. No more level 49 strats for underspeeding. <laughs> nope. Nope. Those times are over. I've seen some Iron Ball Politoads, though, <laughs> to try to get the weather advantage and take advantage of Trick Room, which can be kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah, definitely can be. I guess, uh, speaking of other trends happening... Maybe this is more region-specific for us, but Alex, you pointed out a certain trend 
uh, happening in our region, at least in terms of the major events. Uh, you want to tell us about it and what uh, kind of like what, you know, just what do you think about this trend? Well, uh, one thing that I did notice, at least for here in the U.S., is that Araquanid and Porygon 2 have won every major event. And by that, I mean regional. We have not had a international or above, and I'm not counting midseason showdowns. So, yeah, Araquanid and Porygon 2 were on Gavin Michaels' teams, Andrew Nowak, and Paul Chua's teams, all for their regional winning teams. And so... Uh, it's just an interesting combination. Obviously, Porygon 2 is setting up the Trick Room so that Araquanid, a slower Pokemon, can take advantage of its very strong water bubble ability and just kind of eliminate Pokemon if it's choosing to use the uh, Waterium Z, which I don't know if all of them had. Uh, I know Gavin did. I'm not positive if Paul or Drew did, because I know Paul had a Ferium Z on his Tapu Koko, so I'm not positive what he was running on his... Uh, Araquanid. If you guys know, yeah. uh, go ahead and let me know. Paul, Paul, had, Paul had Mystic Water. Mystic Water. Okay. Okay. At least he had the uh, legal one and not like a water plate or something like that because that <laughs> would have been bad. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's a really, uh, I guess it's a combo that makes a lot of sense. You know, Porygon 2 is, uh, ends up being one of the most popular Pokemon in this format right now. You see it in a lot of top cuts. And while we did take note that in uh, Leipzig, the tournament that Jake, you were at, uh, there was mm-hmm. only one Porygon 2 in the top cut. Uh, it's still a very popular Pokemon here in the U.S., and I imagine it's going to stick around because it's just so unbelievably bulky, and it's a great Trick Room setter, as well as being able to hit pretty decently hard, especially if it gets the correct download boost. Right. And uh, it's just very consistent. And then Araquanid is also a really strong Trick Room Pokemon, so it makes sense that you would see it, and... Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think of seeing these two Pokemon winning every major U.S. event? It doesn't surprise me at all. They're both, like you said, they're both obviously very strong Pokemon. Uh, specifically, Porygon, I think, is easily just the best Trick Room setter in the format. A lot of, like, early in the format, people were using Oranguru a lot. And I still think Oranguru is solid, but I think that Porygon, like, there's really nothing that can knock out Porygon in one hit other than, like, Zemu Feramosa. And so you either have to double target it, which oftentimes still won't knock out Porygon, or sometimes you just have to try and taunt it, but if they see a taunt coming, they can just Ice Beam you, or Thunderbolt you, or Return, or Try Attack, or whatever. It has really good coverage options as well. And so, like like you said, if it gets the right download boost, it can do a lot of damage. And people have started running Return instead of like Thunderbolt or Try Attack to take advantage of the attack boost from download, because a lot of people are like specking their teams to make sure Paragon doesn't get a special attack boost. And so you can take advantage of that with return instead. And so it has so many options outside of just Trick Room. And a lot of times if it's just down to Porygon versus something else, it can uh, win that 1v1 with Recover and whatever attack options it has. And so it's such a good Pokemon. And then Araquanid, it has Water Bubble. The ability is like borderline broken. <laughs> and yeah. if it was on, if it was on something else that had like better stats than Araquanid. Araquanid's base attack is only 70, which like isn't great. It's kind of bad, but Water Bubble gives it such a boost. It doubles the power of water moves. You get half damage from fire attacks, and you get um, you can't be burned. And so that's pretty much like three abilities in one. You have Water Veil, you have half of Thick Fat, and then you have whatever, a new ability that doubles water, whatever you want to call it. But like, Water like, Adaptability. Exactly, yeah. Plus, oh yeah, Adaptability. There you go. Uh, and then you have... It's not the, adaptability, though. Uh, just sorry to interrupt you, Jake. But yeah, yeah, it's not adaptive. It's adaptability on top of stab, which is just unbelievable. Oh, true. Yeah, it's even stronger. <laughs> but yeah, it can just do so much damage. Liquidation, 
like without any item still does a whole lot of damage with mystic water it does a lot more damage you pick up a lot of ko's you couldn't get before uh and then obviously water waterium z is a great option as well because hydro vortex will knock out basically anything that doesn't resist it uh it's just a crazy offense mon it has a lot of cool support options because any attack outside of liquidation is not going to be doing much damage so you can run a bunch of different attacks like uh sub subtoxic is a set that i've run a little bit and i like and i know some other people had come up with it as well uh it gets wide guard which is obviously a really good move in doubles uh there's a lot of other options you can play with as well uh well one thing that i think is fun for araquanid and steven's mentioned this in a past episode i believe uh you said that it would be really broken if another pokemon with a stronger attack had araquanid's water bub ability well it does learn entrainment <laughs> so if you were running two water types on your team uh say like araquanid and tapu fini or gyarados you know there are a couple of water type pokemon that can work on the same team together you know maybe pelipper pelipper is used a lot with other water pokemon because you're boosting the water type moves and if you give them a water bubble ability not only can they not be burned but uh like another water pokemon is going to hit so much harder with uh, a water type attack, considering that they, they likely have a higher offensive stat than a Rockwind 70, and I believe like 50 special attack. And I, I mentioned the special attack just because uh, not only could you entrainment onto other special attackers, but I've seen some uh, Japanese players starting to use Oranguru with uh, Surf Araquanid and just <laughs> instructing it. And uh, I've seen it like on Pelipper Rain teams or with Rain Dance Oranguru. And uh, that team has just wiped the floor with me on Battlespot the couple times I've seen it. And I'm just like amazed that a base 50 special attack Pokemon is just hitting so hard because of its ability. That would be terrifying if you like entrained a Gyarados. Oh my yeah, God. exactly. <laughs> yeah, after it, after it danced up too. Yeah. Or just you see the very common Tapu Fini with choice specs. Well, yeah. if it's firing off Muddy Waters, but now it's got choice specs and Water Bubble, it's right. just going to be unbelievable. And those are both Pokemon that have useless abilities after they come out, too. Like an Intimidate and Misty Search, you can't use again other than the turn they switch in. And so. That, yeah, that's a good point. And same with like uh, Pelipper, who I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, if you wanted to try him, um, uh, just because Pelipper and Araquanid would both enjoy using water moves in the rain. Mm -hmm. uh, Steven, what do you think of the uh, Porygon 2 and Araquanid doing so well here in the U.S.? Well, they've been very impressive. They're very good Pokemon, obviously. And what this reminds me a lot of, and you know, this kind of is more appropriate earlier in the format, the pair of them kind of remind me of you know Mega Kangaskhan back a few from some of the formats earlier, where if you just had a team. And you needed to fill in those last slot, or in this case, two slots. You can just slap it onto a team and they'll be fine, pretty much. And, you know, they make a very solid uh, duo together. You know, either having answers for opponents' trick rooms or it gives you its own trick room mode by itself. So, it's very good. A uh, lot of good options there in terms of their own move diversity. And two really good abilities that people have been, uh, you know, obviously... Uh, starting to prepare a lot more for, so especially Porygon 2's download, uh, people have been EVing in the special defense to always ensure that attack boost gets up, uh, like Jake just mentioned, so that's where all those physical attacks have been coming from. And, you know, Rockwind has very strong, uh, water attacks, even though its base attacking stats are low, and you know when Game Freak were des was designing these Pokemon, that, uh, they kept that in mind, like, oh, we can't make this too powerful, even though it's Strong enough as it is already. See, a similar situation like this, you know, came up with slacking. It has really good base stats and then truant. So yeah. <laughs> they know they know when something uh, tends to 
get borderline uh, disgustingly powerful. I guess Mega King Mega King of Scots might be an exception there, but uh, <laughs> they corrected that mistake. That's okay. Well, I mean, yeah. it only took like three years, but it's okay. <laughs> it slipped through the cracks, though. I, I was just gonna say it's uh, it's funny that Kangaskhan is legal this format because sometimes in team preview I'll see it and I'll think nothing of it because it has the exact same like sprite. So whether I'm playing on Showdown or Battle Spot, it looks the same, and I'm just like, oh, oh yeah, they got a Kangaskhan. It's just a standard team, and I'm like, afterwards, after I think about it, I'm like, wait a minute. That's a Kangaskhan. Yeah. <laughs> that, there's no mega evolutions here. Kangaskhan, what are you doing here? <laughs> Regular Kangaskhan isn't that bad. Anyway, side note. Uh, but <laughs> uh, Very strong Trick Room core there in Araquanid and Porygon 2. It's been winning these regionals for a reason. It's very strong Trick Room answer, either Trick Room option as well. You know, I've already pretty much just summed this up again. They have a lot of options, great base stats, and... Uh, it's hard to it's hard to counter the, hard counter these Pokemon too. You know, it's going to take a lot of team um, compositions together. You know, a lot of teamwork with all the Pokemon and uh, planning out turns ahead to take these guys down because they are uh, really mainstays of this format, and I don't see that changing very soon. I guess to move on to what uh, what'll be our probably our last topic for the day, unless we come up with something on the fly, is. The internationals locations, so, you know, we're kind of, we've kind of been uh, going through the season as it's been progressing and playing out. We've seen three of them announced so far in London, in the UK in December, so that's already happened. We have Melbourne, Australia in March, and then Sao Paulo, Brazil in April. And we're kind of, we're kind of going to talk about what this, uh, where we think the final international in North America will end up being, you know, what city, what locations, why it might be a good idea to put it there. So one of the things I did research a little bit about these three cities is just their size population-wise. Uh, these three cities, London, Melbourne, and Sao Paulo, are some of the largest cities in their regions. So London, I think, was the third largest in population, uh, coming in third after uh, Istanbul, Turkey, and Moscow, Russia. So I don't think Pokemon would have been very happy going <laughs> to those either of those two locations for this. So they just then they just chose London for that. Melbourne is second to Sydney in Australia, and you know I guess they could have they could have done Asia Pacific, you know, anywhere else in uh, one of those Asian countries, but uh, they chose Melbourne. So again, another highly populated city for that region. Sao Paulo is the number one. Most populous city in uh, South America. Not only Brazil, but South America. So that was their choice there. So what could this mean for North America? Because our four major cities in terms of population are New York, L.A., Chicago, Houston. L.A. pretty much has worlds already, so I'm not sure that's an option. I mean, even though they're getting a region, Anaheim's getting a yeah. regional <laughs> next month. So do you see, a poss is there a possibility that the international ends up in one of the larger metropolitan areas of our of north america well the united states rather or do you guys have any other um proposals as to where the international might end up being i think the thing about the big cities in america is that they're so much more expensive venue wise than uh like the smaller cities like we've had nationals in indianapolis and columbus and those cities are they're still pretty good size but they're considerably smaller and therefore more affordable than a place like LA or New York. I think New York specifically, there's just a, not enough room. I'm not sure any place in like New York City would have enough room for us. And then 
like lodging is super expensive there. And so I don't want people to break the bank just to come to one of their tournaments. Uh, the, I think the London and Melbourne choices were pretty easy for their international locations, specifically Melbourne, because that's where they've had Australian nationals every year. And I think if you want to have an APAC international, then Australia is probably the place to do it because they have the largest player base and the most involved player base. London, they've had a national in the UK every year as well. And I think if they're just going down from three to one, London's a fine choice. Uh, they used to have some in Germany and Italy. Germany's were usually in, I think Germany's were usually in one of the smaller towns in Germany. I think it moved around a little bit, but it was never in one of the big cities like Berlin or Munich. There was always kind of a smaller city, more akin to an Indianapolis or Columbus in America. And then Italy's were usually in Milan, I believe. I think it was Milan. But uh, UK is more accommodating for people from a bunch of different countries. Uh, like the main language there is English, and most people in Europe would have at least some grasp of English. And so it's a lot easier to get people to come to an English-speaking country than one that, uh, say, Italy, where the primary language is Italian. And so I think if you're trying to get people to travel to an event within Europe, uh, London's probably a good choice there. Yeah, I'd have to say that uh, I think all these cities that have been picked so far do make sense. And uh, a lot of the cities that you mentioned earlier that are like the highest population counts in the U.S. Uh, do have their drawbacks, like Jake mentioned, where they're really expensive cities to go to. So uh, we've seen it that it's typically, you know, in the Midwest area or just in this uh, in that general vicinity. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was in uh, one of the major cities around there. Um I, I don't know exactly if they have like a uh, contract or not, if they're going to be in Columbus again or not. But I um, I imagine that it's going to be, you know, somewhere close by because uh, while it is still uh, an international now, it is basically the U.S. nationals replacement. So I imagine it's going to be somewhere in one of the major cities in the U.S., but I, I can't really say where I think it would be. Yeah, our VGC nationals in the past, other than... The one Canadian year in 2012, I can't remember which city in Canada it was, Toronto maybe. But, you know, we've had St. Louis, Indianapolis, and Columbus as our national sites. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they chose to go back to any of those. You know, Indianapolis is probably still likely out of the picture for, uh, you know, other reasons. But obviously this is still supposed to be catering for the North American player base. So what would be a... Uh, nice location for everyone to go to to play Pokemon. You know, like you mentioned, one of the biggest key differences this year is the that it's an international. And if the travel awards and stipends thing is still happening, that they'll be flying people in from other regions. And, you know, how feasible is it going to be doing it in a smaller city? You know, you know, in a smaller city with uh, it could be harder to reach by plane. You know, obviously, still won't make that big of a difference considering the way travel works now. But if we took random guesses into cities, like, what would you guys pick? Like, what would your pick be? Like, Alex, we did this in uh, episode one, guessing where would Worlds be for the next season. <laughs> we could try. We should try and do this now while we still have a chance before we know the uh, actual location. Um, maybe we'll see. See what happens, what we get. But back then, Steven, you gave me more time to prepare. I'm really on the spot right now. Okay, so <laughs> I'll go first. I'll take then. a second, though. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I I think we'll just stay in Columbus. I don't think they really have a reason to leave. Uh, if they left Indianapolis for uh, reasons other than Pokemon, like venues and stuff, I think Columbus was a fine city. Uh, the only issue I had with Columbus is that the hotels were all somewhat expensive, and the airport was also 
not the airport, but flights to Columbus are generally more expensive because it's a smaller airport. But other than that, the city of Columbus itself was great. The venue is like right downtown and there's a bunch of restaurants and like a really cool like strip of uh, like nightlife and a lot of cool places to eat very close by. And so it's a very like walkable city once you get to the venue. And I I loved everything about it except for the price, which is something that like it does suck to have to pay a little bit more than in the past. But like it, that's not really something you can control as a player and as a as like Pokemon trying to pick their venues. Like, of course they want to spend as little money as possible, but sometimes there's just not really great options outside of uh, spending a little bit more. And so I think Columbus is probably the most likely bet in my opinion. Uh, I was just going to say, I'm going to go hopeful and say that it's going to be in Chicago (laughs) and (laughs) just not only because I'm a Chicago player, but we, it is a large city uh, and we do have two major airports here. So, or two at least larger airports. So, I feel like that would be, you know, at least a little bit easier to get people to uh, Chicago. It would be, you know, maybe a little bit less expensive depending on what airline you want to use. You have two options for airports, and uh, it would also be really good for me. <laughs> <laughs> no bias there at all. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say Kansas City. Uh, just, just a wild guess, you know, not, not, no, not much uh, evidence behind it. I just think, you know, it's centrally located for the country, at least, despite there not being that much else to do there. Um, the airport's decently large. The city, uh, you know, they lost their regional the over the past two seasons that they've had it. Um, just, you know, I don't know, just taking a guess there. My uh, hopeful pick, which is not going to happen, is Las Vegas. That would be Ooh, really fun. That would be uh, great. I'm sure that's... That's probably more adult friendly than it is for all the younger kids who are coming to play Pokemon. <laughs> the parents got to have something to do as well. That's true. <laughs> they could they could, they could uh, take in all the sights and sounds of uh, Las Vegas. Oh, could you imagine if we played Pokemon in uh, one of those big uh, hotel oh casinos gosh. down there? That would be hilarious. That would be so much fun. I mean, VGC is basically gambling, right? <laughs> well, considering all the prize money that's out there now, in a way, yes. <laughs> I think that was one of the issues with cash prizes they were having is that some states like treated video games as technically gambling and then gambling wasn't legal in those states and so they couldn't give out cash prizes, <laughs> which I think is pretty funny. I remember people making jokes about that last year with uh, Dark Void. And yeah. I was just like, this is all RNG, you know, just the game decides for you. So how how can we let this be legal? How can we pay you? If there was ever a year to put nationals in Las Vegas, it would have been 2016. <laughs> The city comes alive at night, and Dark Void is nighttime <laughs> stuff. So, And you're going to sleep, right? Exactly. Well, Ve- but Vegas never sleeps, so everyone would have missed their Dark Voids. <laughs> but, you know, uh, w- wait, wait. Uh, what's the uh, city that never sleeps? Is that LA? That's New York. New York, okay. It's New York. All right. Well, then we should have done 2016 in New York, so everyone <laughs> mixed their Dark Voids. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so, perhaps we will... Rewind and head back to Columbus. We'll see about that. Uh, otherwise, you know, I think whatever location they end up do deciding, it's going to be a fun surprise to hear about. You know, we'll get to talk about it eventually when that happens. And for the Columbus, at least for Columbus, do you remember in the downtown area, you know, did stuff close pretty early at night? Do you remember? Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember, like specifically seeing anything that closed early i don't think i was ever out super late but like i never had issues finding a place to eat dinner if that's what you're asking 
Yeah, that's pretty much what I was asking. I remember I stayed a bit further away, so I was I didn't get to see a whole lot of Columbus downtown, so I'm not exactly sure. Okay, well, there are lots of lots of uh, places for TPCI to still pick this international, wherever it's going to end up being. Time, I guess one last thing we could do is timing-wise, like, when is this thing happening? You guys have a weekend, specific month, time, date, whatever. I'm just going to stick with history again. I don't really think they have a reason to depart from the July 4th weekend model, especially considering the timing of the inter- other internationals. Uh, we had one in December, which is, like, way earlier than normal, so that's kind of an anomaly. But we have one in March, one in April, and then one in early July is about a month in between for all of them. And so I... I wouldn't be surprised to see them move it, but I also wouldn't be surprised to see them just stick with it, what's been working. I'm fine with July 4th weekend since it doesn't actually have July 4th, since it's on a Tuesday. So if that's if that's all right with me. In past years, it was a bit harder to, you know, get uh, either myself there or friends to come because it was 4th of July weekend. But, you know, with it not being so conflicting with it, I'm fine with that weekend. Um, and, and, you know, anything earlier or just a bit earlier or later i think we'll be fine just because that's like in the dead middle of the u.s summer you know at least for our uh school system nobody's really in school then and uh, i know college kids are out way before that and so uh as long as it's in like late june or early july that's the dead middle of the uh summer for the u.s so i think that's a perfect time just to be a little bit different i'm gonna go the week after july 4th weekend so (laughs) whatever whatever days that is but the weekend after uh, just for the sake of being different, <laughs> you know, I think another reason that July is probably the most likely case is, you know, obviously it has to happen before August, before Worlds, and I think the spring series in terms of premier challenges and other events does end in June, so I don't know how how they'd be able to host the event at the end of June, even though well, I guess it doesn't really matter because um, you have the other internationals in March and April and you're in the middle of the CP season, so who knows what they're going to do. You know, I guess... Uh, since we're wrapping up here, I think the on the subject of locations, Stephen posed the question earlier, where is Team Skull? <laughs> and so I wanted to ask you guys, where is Team Skull? I guess what he's referencing is, where would what's the city we're most likely to run into thugs playing Pokemon? <laughs> you, you were the one to ask the question. You just asked me and Jake, where is Team Skull? I mean, if we're seeing, if we're asking, like, where the most shady location for a Pokemon Charm would be, I think, like, Detroit's obviously the low-hanging fruit. Not exactly the city <laughs> with the best reputation right now, but, um, otherwise, I'm not really sure what the question's asking. <laughs> I think that's probably what the question is asking, okay. is, uh, maybe a place we wouldn't want to have our major tra- Yeah, so tournament. yeah, I would definitely say Detroit would be less than optimal. <laughs> Where is Team Skull going to get us Pokemon trainers? <laughs> uh, I would say that, uh, you know, some of the major cities that we mentioned are places that I wouldn't really want to go. Like, I uh, I know that New York hosts, hosts a lot of Pokemon events, but uh, I know that since it's a, such a large city, you know, there's uh, it's got to at least be a little bit intimidating to be there. Okay, I'm going to change my answer real quick because I just thought of somewhere else that I would rather not go. The only time, the only time I've gone to Houston for Pokemon, I had a backpack stolen. I lost a lot of money, and so I would rather not go back. Oh, there. that's right. <laughs> so yeah, Houston's my answer. <laughs> Maybe that's where Team Rocket is. Maybe. Maybe that was the precursor for Team Skull. They were just foreshadowing. There's a lot of like space engine, space stuff, like NASA out in Houston too. So Team Rocket's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, that's uh, that definitely makes a lot of sense. You know, I think the only one we don't really have to worry about is Team Flare because we're all good looking people, right? And oh all yeah. They wanted, all they wanted no was a beautiful universe. <laughs> My city, I'll pick. Well, uh, I don't know what city I want to pick. Should I say you Phoenix? You asked the question. <laughs> I could say Phoenix. Oh, I like Phoenix. Why are you saying Phoenix? Why am I saying Phoenix? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, like, I know the south side of Chicago is not the greatest place to be, but I don't want to pick my own city. I know. Like, I that's pick, that's picking that half. That's really picking half of it. I thought the same thing, too, though. I was like, well, you know, Chicago can get a bit sketchy on the south side, so. I would pick my own city. Like, I would want National Speed in my own city so I didn't have to pay to fly there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's what me and Steven are saying, is we don't want to make our city sound bad. We want Nationals to be in Chicago, so... When I found out about Dallas Regionals, I was so happy. It was like 10 minutes from my house. Best Regional ever. Yeah, that was pretty nice, though. Like, just seeing seeing Regionals come back to Dallas after... I don't remember how long of a hiatus that was. I think it was like 2011, 2012 is when the last one was. Something like that. Maybe later. Something like that, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't play then. <laughs> I was really excited for St. Charles Regionals back in, I think, 2015 or 2014. That was 15, because I thought yeah. it was St. Charles. Yeah, because I thought it was St. Charles, Illinois. <laughs> but <laughs> it was not in Illinois. I believe it was in Missouri. And so I was like planning my trip and everything. I was like, it's just going to be a 15 minute drive. Wow. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> 15 minutes plus seven hours or so. I guess, I guess we can, uh, continue the Team Skull discussion, uh, in the future. Uh, we'll keep this ongoing. It's kind of fun. <laughs> you guys can find us on iTunes. You can leave us a review there. Uh, download the episodes there. Listen to them on your phone. That's perfectly fine. Email uh, vgchypervoice at gmail.com. You guys can send us feedback. Send us a question if you have a question for us you'd want like to talk about on the show. You can, you know, obviously just leave us comments on the YouTube versions of this. You can tweet at us. Um, you know, whatever. Get... Get a hold of us and let us know if there's something you'd like to see on the show. Uh, all of us have Twitter. Speaking of, Jake, where can people follow you? You can follow me at MajorBowman underscore. Perfect. Alex, how about yourself? You can follow me at LexiconVGC. And I am at SuperMorioka. Thank you for listening to the Hyper Voice. We hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thank you to Jake for being on here. We really appreciate it. We'll see you guys next time for more of the Hyper Voice.